Uh, Romans chapter 7. Go ahead and open up there. So today's text is autobiographical, and yet it's also universal, something that we can all identify with. If I were to describe to you an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other shoulder, what would I be talking about? Contrast. What else? Go deeper. Good versus evil. Your conscience, right? Yeah, it's sort of a decision. There's choices to make and whatnot. Uh, We see this everywhere. Here's a shot of Homer Simpson wrestling with good and evil. Uh, This next cartoon goes kind of like on an inception level with angels and devils on the shoulder of the angel consulting the two, which gets a little disturbing, and I'm not sure it's theologically correct. And then even sort of wrestling with, you know, do our dogs and pets have the same sort of struggle, right? I know mine doesn't seem to have any shame whatsoever. We all get this. It's not just two choices in front of us when we're wrestling with something. It's as if there's two selves that we're dealing with. Because the choice is outside of us, but but this depiction that we all kind of gravitate to and understand is almost like two selves pulling on each other. We say some really weird things sometimes. When you pause and think about what you say, it can be kind of interesting. Have you ever said this? Against my better judgment, I, and then fill in the blank. Well, here's the oddity of that as you pause. Have you ever acted against your better judgment? Probably So here's the question then. Who's the other person doing the acting against your judgment? And then do they arm wrestle? Like how do they figure out who actually gets to act? If one is making a judgment, another part of you is making a better judgment, and then you act on the thing that isn't as good of a judgment. How do you reconcile that? I mean, again, the the things we say, just sort of common vernacular, shows that we get this. Probably one of the best movies that kind of depicted this recently was Inside Out. Inside Out is the story of Riley and sort of inside of her head represented by these characters, joy, anger, sadness, disgust, and fear. And if you haven't seen this, this is a Pixar film. Pixar does a lot of great films. But if you haven't seen this, the sheer brilliance of the film is this. The whole movie centers on this fight for control. And this is the control board of Riley's brain. And the whole movie really centers around this idea that we have these different parts to ourself that wrestle for control. And not only do they wrestle for control, but it shows us these internal things going on have external consequences in our relationship. They have external consequences as we relate to the outside world. So just, again, sort of a fascinating movie thinking thinking that whole idea through. I had an interesting time this week just listening to my music and just things as I go through my day and just sort of with an ear toward the war within. The war within is all through our song lyrics. I mean, it is just, it is just through song after song after song. Uh, this is a guy by the name of Bill Maloney, I think one of the best songwriters of our day, but he says this, I've been trying to negotiate peace with my own existence. She's got a stockpile full of weaponry. She's breaking every ceasefire agreement. And just laying out these truths that, that we're at war within our own self, and it's a struggle. 
If you have a Bible, or if you have a phone that contains your Bible, it may lose a little effect holding your Bible on your phone, but I want you to hold the Bible for a second. By the way, if you're a visitor with us, if you're new with us, there's a Bible sitting in front of you, and if it's not there, it's behind you. Love to have you fill out a card, by the way, just to get to know who you are. We won't spam you, but we'd love to introduce ourselves. But as you hold this book in your hand, or your phone with an app in your hand, The app hasn't been around that long, but this book has been around a long time. This is an ancient text, really a translation of an ancient text that we hold in our in our grasp. And if you don't know, it's a library of books, right? 66 books make up the entire Bible. And as you hold the Bible and think about it, you think about this. The Bible reads so incredibly relevant and pertinent and current to our lives precisely because of this point, that it was written by our creator. Our creator God who designed all of the human body, mind, soul, will, heart, strength, anger, sadness, disgust, all these ways we sort of, you know, lay it out there, ego, super ego, however you want to lay it out there, God designed all of us. And he designed all of us individually, as in all the different components of us. And he loves us enough that he wrote some things down. When something's important enough, you write it down. That's what God did. And he wrote it down, we saw this last week, because he is a loving parent to us. And he's instructing us. And he's careful to get it right. He's careful to say, I want you to understand this. I want you to see this. So if you're new with us on a regular basis, I will open this book and we will just teach directly from this. That's, that's why we do this. I have utter, utter confidence in what I get to say on Sunday mornings because I really pray before God, God, let me just be the messenger of your truth. I don't need to make it relevant. I don't need to make it funny. I don't need to make it impactful. I need to lay it out plainly and simply and truthfully because I believe there's power in the written word of God. And as I've been soaking in the text that we're about to look into this morning, it's been tremendously powerful for me this week. This morning I'm asking you because the text asks you to do this. I'm asking you not just to look in the mirror, which James says that the Bible is kind of like a mirror, right? We don't just read the book, the book reads us. I'm asking you to do more than look in the mirror, though. I'm actually looking, asking you to look into your soul. Now, for some of you, this is a regular exercise, and you're used to this. And by the way, the Bible teaches all kinds of self-talk that we ought to be doing. For some of you, this is really scary territory. And you go, wait, what? Let me give you a couple of scripture passages of what I'm talking about to sort of demystify it a little bit. I will say this, that looking in the mirror requires not much more than just an effort, you know, to get in front of a mirror. Looking into your soul requires something a little different. It requires you to kind of sort of have space to pause. We often call churches like this, this room a sanctuary. And you think about a sanctuary for a bird or something. A bird is not worried about being hunted in a sanctuary. A bird can just kind of take a deep breath. And I'm asking you to take a deep breath. I've been praying for you this week. God, would you allow the people, the friends of mine that are going to come, the family of God, to have the voices of distraction removed from this place? God, would you allow us as we look into our soul to have utter honesty prevail and pray this prayer? God, if there's any wicked way in me, would you show me that and give me the courage to act on it? Here's a couple scriptures. Sometimes we speak to ourselves. Psalm 104 says this, Bless the Lord, O my soul. It's like just telling your inner self, Do this, because this is the right thing to do. 
I love this passage that sometimes we cry out to God to speak to our inner places. Say to my soul, he's talking to God, say to my soul, I am your salvation. Don't we need that reassurance sometimes? God, you talk directly to me. You tell me what's up. If you struggle with doing things you don't want to do, you must hear this message. Now, if you're like me, um, you kind of zone out at points. Okay, Some of you may have zoned out at that. So I'm going to say this again. Rewind. Okay, here we go. This is really important. If you struggle with doing things you don't want to do, hint, that's all of us. You must hear this message. Every one of us has this war within, and we're looking for answers. A guy by the name of Henry Nouwen was um, reflecting on this quote, and he wrote down a prayer about it. And I want to open our time just sort of reading from his personal journal on this. But the quote he was looking at is this, He who can really cry one hour about himself is greater than he who teaches the whole world. He who knows his own weakness is greater than he who sees the angels. And after pondering on that, he said this. And just close your eyes and sort of pray along as we open up. These words, O Lord, are so true. I realize that my preoccupation with my sinful deeds is a way of avoiding a confrontation with my real sinfulness. An avoidance of a confrontation with my real sinfulness means also an avoidance of a confrontation with your mercy. As long as I have not experienced your mercy, I know that I am still running away from my real sin. Come, Lord. Break through my compulsions, anxieties, fears, and guilt feelings. And let me see my sin and your mercy. Amen. Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 14. Just follow along if you have a Bible open. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my actions. For I do not do what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the ability... For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Verse 19. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil is close at hand. Evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? 
Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Last week we looked at the law. In part one we said, what is the law good at? What is it intended for? The text took us into these descriptors of the law. The law is holy, the law is righteous, the law is good. Remember what Paul's doing, he's sort of preemptively asking the questions that he knows things will stir up in his listeners. So as he's talking about the fact that you don't have to, uh, you don't have to do law under, uh, to, to gain God's favor, he's swinging back and saying, is the law then sin? He's saying, of course not. The law is righteous and holy and good. And he lays out what the law is good for. And by way of review, it's intended for things like this, revealing sin, holding transgressors accountable, amplifying how dark sin is. But then he also says this, what sin in our members, in our body does, is it hijacks that which was good, namely the law, and it accomplishes evil through it. So that's what the law is good at. This week, what we're going to do is ask this question. What does the law stink at? What is it terrible at? And what will it never, ever be able to do? Here are the three things. It'll never change you. It'll never empower you to do good. And it will never free you. So you get to relax this morning. You don't need to fill those in. I already filled them in for you. No surprises. If you're... New with us, or by way of review too, we're, we're in this section, um, we've called the series Colossal Truth, because these are great big giant truths. I'll tell you what's really easy to strike up a conversation with anyone about is angel and devil on your shoulder. Hey, you ever struggle with conscience? You ever struggle with morality? Every single person, they'll engage with you right away. What will they not like? So that part of Colossal Truth, when Paul paints that picture for all of people, for all of time, no worries there. What's the part of colossal truth that will rub people wrong? That there is a defined and absolute right and wrong that you should be searching for. Isn't that the rub? That's the rub. You start talking that way and all of a sudden people will ask you this question. Who made you, right, and then fill in the blank, boss, king, ruler of my life, why would you impose your morality on me? So that's the rub. Specifically, where we're at, we've talked about ruin, which is the first part of Romans. We're in a section on redemption, and specifically about redemption. Not just that God redeemed us and left us kind of waiting for us to kind of join him someday, but he is in the process of something called sanctification. Sanctification is that process by which we get saved, and the day we get saved, we are still acting and trained and ingrained sinners, aren't we? And there are some things that begin to change, but it is a process of time that we grow in holiness and Christ begins to form himself in his children. So that's what sanctification is. I want you to look for a moment up at verse 4 of chapter 7 because really, again, think of this as a letter that we are breaking up chunk by chunk, looking at week by week. And so we can kind of forget some things. But if you take verses 4 to 6... It kind of gives an overarching context to what we're talking about. And it lays out, basically it lays out two things, the way of the written code and the spirit. So verse 4 says this, Likewise, brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. That was Easter. 
to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members. By the way, every time you see members in this chapter, it's talking about your physical members, the parts of your body. We're at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we can serve in a new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. Someone rightly said this, The old nature knows no law. The new nature needs no law. That is a glorious, rich reality. But we live in the sort of now and the not yet. Right? If you're a Christian and you understand even just sort of the basics of it, you say, that is true. But I don't experience that on a day-to-day basis. I'm longing for a day where I can just say, no laws are needed for Dave. Because living out of Christ who lives in me, and because I desire that which I desire the most, which is God, and all that is glorious and true, you don't need any boundaries in my life. That is not true of me. I wish it were. There's a sense that it's true because it's been stated true, but sanctification is that process of God making that true in my life. Some of you know this to be true because you know this experientially. You hold on to that which what you know is true even though you don't feel like it's true in the moment. Can you nod your head if you experience that? Isn't that something we do? We, we just go, I know this to be true. I'll tell you what God hit me with first thing this morning. My alarm went off. Actually, I woke up for whatever reason six minutes before my alarm. And the first thought on my mind this morning was this. Praise God, I'm dead to sin and alive to God. That's the first thing that God put in my mind. That is a glorious reality. That is absolutely true. Before I stepped out of bed, that is absolutely true. And yet what we know and experience in our day-to-day life is that we still fall to sin. Why is that if I'm dead to sin? Why is it that we still need laws and rules to help us if our, if our new nature needs no law? Again, this is, this is the, the text that we're looking at. Let me tell you a story of a guy that before conversion was a hard-working, proud, results-driven, top-of-his-class achiever. He had been this way for a long time in his life, and it created a persona in him that made him absolutely unsympathetic for second place. No mercy, no compassion for those that were less than him and that wouldn't work hard to achieve things that they wanted to get. This guy then made a profession of faith. He repented of his sins. He saw the error of his ways. He said, God, I don't want control anymore. I repent of that. I trust and believe and receive not only the forgiveness that you have, but in the eternal life that will come in the the one day. But right now, I want to live my life. I want to give control over to you. Post-conversion, here's what this guy did. This guy took all that brought him success, happiness, joy, and some measure of fulfillment... And he applied it to his new life in Christ. Hard worker. Spiritual achiever. Unsympathetic to any and all who would be slobs and not take after his incredible work ethic. 
And what he expected was, he expected sort of the same results. Here's what he was doing in essence. He was taking the old way of living, the only way he knew how to live, and he was applying those same principles Going after, if, if I'm going to do the Jesus thing, I'm going to do it a thousand percent. I'm going to be top in my class. That was his mindset. You could probably predict in your mind how the conversations went with me on the phone post-conversion. We would talk about his immense disappointment. He was disappointed in the church. Why, if this is true, why don't we meet every single day? Why on earth isn't everyone serving and starting ministries and doing stuff like crazy? And I would say to him, I go, I don't know. I think everyone should do that. I think I should probably get going on that. And then it turned internal. He got it really disappointed with himself. If these things are true that I read in the scriptures, why, why am I not growing as fast? Why is this not happening? And he took the old way and he applied it to the new way. But what he had done is this. He had essentially taken uh, his old way of hard work at law and rule-keeping and achievement and applied it, and no lasting spiritual fruit comes from our hard work, does it? No lasting spiritual work comes from our immense effort and hard work. So it was a difficult lesson to learn. The law is terrible at changing you. He adds one more thing. He says last text that it's holy, righteous, and good. He adds one more thing in verse 14, that the law is spiritual. What that means is this. It doesn't just deal with external actions. The law cuts right to the heart. The law cuts to the motive of things. As I began to talk with this guy, I prayed, I said, God, give me insight as to how to describe the new life to him. And by the way, you just bypass me. Holy Spirit, you're going to have to grab a hold of this person's heart, mind, soul, and will and sort of direct him in the new way. But as I engaged with this guy more and more, I kept going back to the internal things of motive. And when all this pride would come, I would kind of go back to the Sermon on the Mount and say, you know, you're keeping these externals really, really well. I don't even know who told you how to do this because you didn't grow up in the church, but you're keeping it better than most Christians, by the way. But the heart behind it, the motive behind it, God looks at that. God cares how you get there. God cares how you accomplish these things for him. There's sort of a quicksand effect to the law. And some of you experience this more than others. Try harder. Work faster. Do more. And sort of the more you do that with law living, the more that sin is incited in you, the more that sin is provoked in you. Because even if you feel like you start to make headway, what happens? You're surrounded by the cloud of pride, aren't you? And you look with utter contempt on those poor saps who don't work nearly as hard as you do. And at some point with law living, the law requires what? Batting a thousand percent. So at some point when you don't get a hit, you either fall to your knees and realize, wait a minute, I'm back to trying to save myself by works. This is what the first part of Galatians is about. Or what do you do? You go underground and you fake it. You know what? I'm still batting a thousand percent externally, I think. I think people still think I'm pretty good at, at keeping law. I know internally, I'm right around 324, you know? 
but I'm going to keep up the show. I'm going to work really hard. I'll tell you who has the hardest time with this. Pastors. Pastors, worship leaders, missionaries. Sort of that pressure to, to be what people sometimes want to put on people on stage. Whenever someone tries to put me on any pedestal, I get down that thing as quick as I can. There is one mediator between God and man. Who is it? It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the senior pastor of this church. All the rest of us are under shepherds. So don't put people up there. Your favorite author, your favorite whatever. The law can't change you. Why aren't we immediately changed? Verse 5 says that we're no longer in the flesh. But until we die, the flesh is still in us. And there is the rub. Think about putting out a fire. When is, when is water bad at putting out fires? Water is bad at putting out fires when it becomes fuel for the fire. You ever have a grease fire? If you have a grease fire and you throw water on it, what it does is it splatters the grease and it kind of enrages the fire all the more. So once you get to that point in your life, where as a kid you just think water puts out fire, the more water, what happens is if you were to see that happen, you would frantically do all the more water, right? And you would think, man, the water's broken. Like, what's happening? And you keep pouring it on. This person I described to you, a real-life story of a person who worked law really hard and it got him some things, and then he had a whole new understanding of how to live, but he applied old methods to it. Once you get an understanding that water isn't always putting uh, fire out, it actually can add fuel to it, it has to change your actions. Here's the whole new understanding that we're given. Colossians 1.27 says this, And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. That's the secret. Here's another one, Ephesians 3.17. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust him. At conversion, you have God with us. You have the advent of God now living with you at all times. And that's the secret to this inner war. And that takes a whole new way of thinking. I thought about how many times us as Christians are like Gollum, right? Gollum from Lord of the Rings. One day, we're just wanting to please the master, and we just say great things, and we're following diligently, and the next thing, we're cursing under our breath at master, and wanting to do harm to everything he's trying to accomplish. And I look at that character, and I go, wow, that's the war within. That's how we look internally when we're going back and forth with this. And you see the torment in Gollum living this way all this time. So we're Gollum and Smeagol. We're, we're Jekyll and Hyde. And we have this going on. And do you hear the cry at the end of this, what Paul says? Who will deliver me from this wretched man that I am? Man, you just hear not just the struggle with sin, but that sort of oppressive feeling of hopelessness that can overcome us. And I pray that you continue, if not at this church, at some church family that teaches God's word, relies on the Holy Spirit, and points to Jesus, that you will never abandon meeting with your church family. It is imperative for us to be together. It is imperative for us to be in each other's lives. Is Sunday enough? No. But Sunday ought to be a culmination of a week of worship and a launch point for all that's coming in this coming week. 
that we come and we keep the fires stoked and we keep the fires hot. So good as it is, law doesn't change us. Three times he laments the power of, uh, uh, of the struggle between good and evil, this war within. Verse 18 sums it up. Look at it. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And that is just a truth statement that really points to Jesus. Praise God we get to get into Romans 8 next week, because Romans 8 really begins to point to life in the Spirit. But for now, we want to camp out in this verse and see where the power does not come from. I leased a Chevy Spark a few months ago, and it was a really, really good lease deal, so good that I couldn't pass it up, and we got it. And we have another driver coming down the ranks. There was one minor thing. It was a brand new car. One minor thing is it doesn't have brakes that stop you. Um, so three times since I've owned this car in a few months, there's been total brake failure while driving down the road. It really increases your prayer life. It's been a good, good thing. And for you old school people of used to pulling an e-brake up this way, the first time it happened, I'm on Almaden Expressway driving along about 40. Fortunately, it's 10 in the morning, not a lot of cars. And no brakes. I mean, just absolutely nothing. And I went to, like, reach for something. You know what my e-brake is on a Chevy Spark? Yeah, it's a little button that you put your finger here and you go, boop, and you just kind of nudge it up. So I'm going like this, frantically trying, like, how do you stop a car? It was kind of exciting. So we're in this mode right now where I'm using a loaner car from the Momentum Chevrolet dealer. And my first car was an electric car. And i got to tell you, this electric car was super, super fun to drive. It looks kind of geeky, but it's amazingly fun to drive. The loaner car that I got is gas-powered, and a Chevy Spark gas-powered car is not fun to drive at all. So when you look at these two cars, they both have this little door. And from the outside, you would have no idea that one is an electric and one is a gas. But you flip open the door, and what you realize is this. There's two totally different power sources to this. Let me tell you the point of this. The law is gas to an electric car. You take gas and you pour it all over my electric car, no matter where you put that thing, nothing, nothing's going to make that thing go with that. So here's the question for us. What makes good go? What makes good go? How do you get good actually in gear? Because every single person you ever meet has good desires. They have good ideas at some point in their life. How do you get that in, in gear and make it go? How do you get good to go? It's God, right? And more specifically, it is God in you. That is how you take your desires that this passage talks about and your lack of ability and you still see good things coming from your life. Why? Because God is making it go. And if you take law and you try to make your good go from the law, it will produce what gas produces to an electric vehicle. Problems. Right? So that's the point. The law cannot empower you to do good. Believers have two really serious problems. We can't do the good we want and the evil we don't do, we end up doing. All through the scriptures, sin is talked about in really powerful language. In the book of Genesis, God the Father is teaching, and he's talking to Cain. 
And he says this in Genesis 4. Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, watch this. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. The seriousness, the weight of sin. How about this big language from Jesus in Mark chapter 9 surrounding the warning of sin? He says this, and if your hand causes you to sin, do what? Cut it off. That is a big language, big warning kind of idea. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell to the unquenchable fire. How about your foot? Cut it off. It's better to enter lame than with two feet and be thrown into hell. Goes on to the eye. Pluck it out. If you're looking at stuff, if your eye is on something other than the Lord, it's better to tear that thing out. Go into the kingdom of God with one eye than to have your eyes intact and be thrown into hell. He says, where worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Friends, sin is powerful. The great news, God is more powerful. Do you see that sin is still in him in this passage? He's saying, I'm still battling these things. My mind knows the kingdom of God and the law of God is what I want to do. But in my members, I keep carrying out sin. Christ is in you. So to understand the warning of sin, the stench of sin, the danger of sin, but also to grasp and hold on to the reality that God is greater. You know, the lure of self-reliance is an absolute killer in our day. Let's kind of think about yesteryear and maybe builder and boomer generations. Who did they go to for life coaching? Well, you might have written to Ann Landers or seen Oprah or Dr. Phil and trying to get some answers to kind of guide you to a better you. What's the big deal today? Social media. Social media isn't just for entertainment. There's a lot of life coaching. There's a lot of mentoring going on with social media. Interestingly, people have followers, right? People who are teaching, people who are instructing, people who are uh, sort of modeling how life can be lived actually will sort of say, I have X number of followers. I have X number of disciples. I have X number of people checking in with me to sort of shape their worldview. So I decided to do a little experiment. Probably on Tuesday or Wednesday, I typed in, be true to yourself. Be true to yourself is a really popular phrase, and it's it's worked in really. If you ever seen another Pixar movie, The Incredibles, where little buddy is talking about, you always say be true to yourself, but which part of your of myself should I be true to? I love just an insightful little scene. You got to watch that. Um, but I just typed it in, and I indiscriminately I took the very first hit, and I just decided whatever Google comes up with first, I'm going to take that and read it and kind of see what is out there. It happened to be from a publication group, they do social, they do print, called the Huffington Post. You've probably heard of it. 
So I typed in, be true to yourself, and this is the article that came up. And I want to just read for you uh, from this author some of the things that he writes. He writes this. First of all, know who you are and accept yourself. He gives no real tips on discovering how that, except for this. You find it and then live that way all the time. So find who you really are and live that way all the time. How do you discover who you are? Here's his, here's his advice. Here's his instruction. You can only find that out by living life. Let me say this. My, I, I read the first bullet point and I immediately thought this. False. So much of how you look at who you are and the people around you is the interpretation of living life. It's not just living life. I know that because me and my three brothers went through a actual divorce in our early years, and we went through a church divorce in our later years. And I watch and see how me and my three brothers, all of whom raised up in a very, you know, just similar household, interpreted those events and what God did and what we did in response to it. It wasn't just that we all lived the same thing and we all discovered who we are out of that. God reveals, we guess, on how to interpret circumstances. Here's the second thing. He writes this. It involves a personal choice for truth. And this is the part that really caught my eye. He says, you have total power to live any way you want. Does anyone else smell the garbage of this line? Like, this tickles my ears, I suppose, while I'm reading. I'm like, yeah, I do have the power to live any way I want. But it's so misguided. Do you see the honesty and the struggle that Romans 7 puts out? Do you see how countercultural it is? Now, I know I'm picking on one Huffington Post article and author, but this is what's out there. That is misguided solutions. Here's the third thing. He says, don't live by the standards of others or, or others' rules. Live as your natural self. Well, if that's true, this would, of course, mean that you shouldn't live by God's standards or, or, or rules, right? Because you shouldn't live by anyone else's standards or rules. And if living as our natural self were so great, why are so many people Googling how to have help on this stuff? I wouldn't even need this guy writing this. People are living out their natural self and they are finding dead ends. And not just dead ends, but torturing dead ends. A stream of bad decisions. A stream of bad relationships. And they're longing for something different. Here's one more. He says integrity. You're either living in integrity or out of integrity. Integrity is a word you should hear in church a lot. In essence, it's this, the quality of being honest and having strong moral principles. And as I read this article, it's not hard to see this, that in the flesh, on your own, on all that total power you have to live however you want, you have to pick one of these. If you pick honesty, the honesty component of integrity, you will say bluntly, I am not a morally upright person. I'm not. 
Or you can be dishonest and live as a morally upright person, right? But you cannot have both of those in the flesh. So as I see this, again, a sampling of the power offered by the lost. At the risk of offending some of you, I'm okay with it. Jesus offended. I'm just passing on the truth. It is the blind leading the blind. This is utter nonsense, and this is utter garbage, and all this does is delay, potentially, the inevitable. Natural living, living out of your natural self with all that power that you have, leads to death. Proverbs warns us of this. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it is the way to death. Guesswork versus revelation. That's what's on display here. There's no power here. You have to look at the results of this. Romans 6.20 says this. For when you were slaves of sin, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. It would be an interesting exercise to sit down with this author and say, how are you really living? How is it working out, living in all that integrity with all that power you have? The law doesn't change you, doesn't offer you the power that you need, and it doesn't free you. I was a college pastor for a lot of years, and many students came to faith, and they experienced the utter freedom and the utter joy of release from their sin. They got a clear understanding of their sin. They got a clear understanding that that deserves death. They got a clear understanding that Jesus paid that debt they could never owe. And for a short season, they would walk in freedom, and some of them, not all of them, but some of them would get re-enslaved, not to sin directly, but indirectly. They would get enslaved to a Christian organization that preached law, ritual, work, and effort. And I'd watch these kids get released from, um, from sin and be saved. And they would, they would track with an on-campus group. They would track with some other college ministry. They would track with something they found on the internet. And they would come back and be around and what would happen is this. I love their zeal for holiness. I, loved, I love a new Christian's zeal and passion to be like their Heavenly Father. But it would come back in pride. It would come back in condescension. It would come back in elitism and effort. So I remember doing a series called Saints Too Soon. And here's what we talked about. Stereotypes are really important. Let me just throw a couple out. Librarian, what comes to your mind with a librarian? Huh? Mean? Meek. Okay, what else? Quiet. Quiet. Shh. Right, that a lot. What else? Dewey Decimal. Okay, let's try another one. Um, used car salesman. Sleazy. Sleazy. What else? Strict. What else? Okay, what else? Pushy. Okay. How about a jock? Arrogant. Proud. What else? Unintelligent. Competitive, right? Okay. Now, again, my apologies to all the librarians, used car salesmen, jocks in the room, but it'd be a fun combo. Um, but 
but those, but those sort of form in our minds, like sort of what jumps to mind. Every one of those I tracked with everything you just said. Let me do one more. Saint. What comes to mind? Good. What else? Whoever said football needs to repent? <laughs> of course it's you, Frank. Saint. What else? What else comes to mind? Huh? Holy, yeah. Okay, helper. Anything else? Interesting, we don't have as much on saint as we do on used car salesmen. That's kind of a, that's just kind of a fascinating social experiment. Here's what, here's what the college students, I remember them coming up with this, but it was sort of a holier than thou. We were a little bit closer to a Saturday Night Live sketch called Church Lady with Dana Carvey. And they were just kind of, it was kind of a, a, you know, again, kind of a scowl on their face, super serious. Um, and all of these things. And here's the reality, Christian. Listen to this. You are a saint right now. I mean, part of the Bible is addressed to the saints who are at. And that's not some special class. That is a person. If you received Christ this morning because you repented of your sins and you trusted him for salvation, you're a saint as much as the oldest person in here has walked with the Lord the most. So the stereotype of these things, though, is what I was trying to get at with saints too soon. We are consecrated to God, but if we act like the spiritual elite and emphasize all the ways we're different from those poor people of the world, here's what happens. It obscures the message we've come to, 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 to offer them. So there's a sense as a Christian, we ought to show how very much the same we are with every person we meet. I really believe that church ought to be sounding something like Sinners Anonymous. Think about how Paul wrote. He said, I am the chief of sinners. Hi, I'm Dave, and I am the worst sinner you know. To which you reply, hi, Dave, right? I mean, maybe for a season, we just get really honest. We just go in a big circle, and we start that way. I am the chief of sinners. Wouldn't you be tempted with Paul to tell your, to tell your testimony like a weight loss before and after? I used to be the worst guy you knew. But God. And now, ding! Right? That's kind of how we can tell our testimonies. And it's not what Paul did. So the law can't for you. 2 Corinthians 3 really talks about the Man, the absolute danger of self-reliance. Think back to the Huffington Post article while I read this. He says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not by the letter of, uh, not by the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So how do I grow? I want to wrap up our time asking this question. I want to have a warning for you that you may not be impressed with the answer. And because you're not impressed with the answer, you might miss the answer. I don't know if I put it in your notes, but if I didn't, write down uh, 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5 is a pretty fascinating little account um, that really sp- speaks to what I'm about to say. Basically, there's this guy named Naaman. He's the commander of a Syrian army, and he had leprosy. And the faith of a young servant girl, he says, man, I wish, she knew the answer. I wish you could go talk to this prophet Elisha uh, from, from Israel. 
So this guy Naaman gets permission from his king to go to Elisha, and he brings with him his whole entire entourage, chariots and wealth and all this stuff, gifts and servants. And then he's told how to heal from leprosy, a horrendous disease. But he almost misses it in his pride. He's offended because the person wouldn't come out to meet him, and he was used to sending servants to go meet with people, not being dissed that way. And also he had some ideas of a better way of healing. So in 2 Kings 5.11, it says this, Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. What was his instruction? Go wash in the Jordan seven times and you'll be healed. To that, he says this, Are not the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away in his rage. Catch this. He almost missed life or death healing because of pride. He was unimpressed with the answer. It seemed too simple. So what did he do? He wanted to add some sophistication to it. He wanted to add something to it. Isn't that self-reliance? Isn't that the definition of self-reliance? God says, get in the ark. It's going to rain a lot. Well, I've got a better way. I'm working on some uh, measurements for this thing called a jet ski. I think it's going to be okay. So you're going to improve on God's way of salvation. People do this with the gospel all the time. It is so hard to humble ourselves like a child, be absolutely needy, and therefore gain the kingdom of God. The secret to battling temptation, the secret of turning your good intentions into good deeds is found in the Holy Spirit. It's found in the verses I already read to you, that Christ is in you. Remember, Jesus said it would be better if I go away than to stay. Why? Because when he stayed, he would be in bodily form in one place at one time with one set of people at any given time. If he goes away, what happens? The Spirit of Christ indwells us. Jesus is with us through the Holy Spirit every day, all the time, in all of our varied places, not just in our little church, but Christians around the world and through the centuries. We invite the band to come on up. It's found in the Holy Spirit. Instead of putting a lid on, on desires as bad, the Holy Spirit lifts the lid on desires and directs us to the right ones and says, get after it. Instead of mustering more willpower apart from the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit invades our life and we simply live out God's will in His power. And instead of working to cultivate self-control, we cultivate life in the Spirit and we bear spiritual fruit. Which, by the way, according to Galatians, includes self-control. So how do I grow? Well, here's another question. How do you turn a tiny little insignificant seed into an apple-bearing tree? You put it in the ground, you bury it, you water and tend it, and then you marvel at the miracle of growth that God causes as something bursts through the ground that you don't have much control over, and you continue to tend that tree until it begins to produce fruit. 
And if it stops producing in a season, you invite the gardener to come and prune and trim and do all kinds of things. Turning good desires into good deeds, hear this, is a work of God. It is spirit that produces fruit. Chapter 8 is going to be all about life in the spirit. Chapter 7 mentions the law 31 times. Chapter 8 mentions the spirit 21 times. So we get to shift, (laughs) thankfully, from law living and all of this into next week and the few weeks beyond in May, just saying, God, how does this happen? I want to quickly, I've given you on the back three people that teach us hopeful truth. One is that it's never too late. The thief on the cross teaches us that, doesn't he? It's never too late with God. I've been with people on their deathbed. They want to have a pastor come in and confirm that they're going to heaven. I can't do that. All I can do is give the same message I've given up here on Sundays and throughout the week my whole life. So I give it to them. But I do point out it's never too late. You could have lived your life like you're flipping God off with your life. Like the prodigal son who says, you're as good as dead to me. And in the very last hour, place your trust in Jesus Christ. And through the unimaginable grace and mercy and patience and goodness of our God, there's room even for you. Friend, hear me. It is never too late. Second one is that you're not too far gone. Write down the prodigal son. The prodigal son went and lived in the distant country. Remember that? He takes his wealth and he leaves the father. He leaves his home. What he's doing is he's rejecting all of that. And in that far and distant country, the hound of heaven found him. And in an instant woke him up. I'm eating pig slop. Or at least I'd long to eat pig slop. Can't even do that. And he came to his senses and in an instant he got up and went home. Didn't just have a wake-up call. He went and acted on it. You're not too far gone. And good old Peter teaches us that God's not done yet. Peter the disciple, not done yet. I love the encounter of him after Jesus dies. He goes back to what he kind of knows to do. He's out fishing again. Remember that? And while he's out fishing, man, it's just such a beautiful picture that Jesus comes and three times, remember what he asked him? Peter, do you love me? And it began to be disturbing to Peter. What Jesus was doing is he was coming and he was putting a healing balm on each of the denials. The three times Peter denied Jesus. Peter confessed his love. And Peter is a changed person in the New Testament. A couple of years ago, Rob and Ben wrote this song called Not Done Yet. We're going to sing it right now. We're going to lead you in it. So join in with us. It is such a hopeful song. I told Rob this on the phone a couple days ago. I said, man, this sounds like it was written for Romans 7. I mean, it sounds like it was written just right in this, in this nook of where we are. It's applied to a lot of other things. But hear the hopeful message found in this song. Thank you, God, that you enable us to do things 
like live a righteous life. That comes from you, God. Nothing that we can do could get us on the right track. It's your spirit that guides and leads us. It's your grace that gives us the freedom to live in these truths. And we thank you so much, Lord, that you have given us this grace. It sustains us. It changes us. It helps us to know that we have a hope in a future. Help us to live in that today, Lord, as we leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen.